0: Joe Yerky of The Insiders has joined The Antidote. Joe, seriously, this is an honor. Oh, thank you so much. I'm stoked to do this. This is going to be fun. Well, you know, I have to tell you that I never thought this talk would ever happen. You know, I, I'm a huge fan of Ska, but The Insiders had disappeared. And so, you know, I sort of figured, well, that's that. But now the band is back. So what was the motivation for the reboot?
1: Uh, the motivation was I do a, I do a podcast with Reese Roper from Five Iron Frenzy, and you know they've gotten back together. They've been doing stuff, and he doesn't let it die about continuing to ask me if the insiders are going to get together to do stuff. And I keep telling him no, keep telling him no, keep telling him no. And then last year they played Furnace Fest in Alabama,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and. They played with some of the bands that like I absolutely love. Like one of my all-time favorite bands is a hardcore band called Earth Crisis. And so they played with Earth Crisis. And I was like, holy smoke, like that would have been so cool to play. And then he was like, Yeah, the promoters like grew up kind of in the scene and know all of us and kind of bring Christian bands from the nineties like back to the the festival. They do. Yeah. And so like as we're talking on the podcast, there's um there's like a Facebook page called the Diabolical Discussion Page. And people on there started connecting me with the promoters and kind of got it going. And, you know, when we kind of got the informal, would you be interested in doing this? Um, I checked with the guys and they were all like, yeah, let's do it. So that's where it came from was to just kind of play Furnace Festival, kind of come back and just do a reunion show. And that's what's kind of spawned it.
0: So we have a couple of warm-up shows before then, but that's the biggie. For a long time, I've heard people saying that ska's dead. So you're really out to prove that they're wrong.
1: Yeah, you know. I mean, Ska comes to the forefront and then it disappears for a while. And all the like fad music comes back out. And then what I like to think <laughs> is the greatest genre of music, it always comes back. Like the cream always rises to the top. You can mix it, you can stir it, but it's always going to come back up.
0: I'm not going to disagree with you at all. Good, 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 good. Well, tonight, I want to hear the entire story of the Insiders. Okay. <laughs> Which is kind of hard to squeeze into 60 minutes. Especially with me talking.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Because <laughs> I'm a talker. Well, listen, take us back to 1996. How did the band idea come up?
1: Uh, Nate Shogren and I, are drummer, we went to high school together. We played in a talent show. And or as I like to call it, talentless show. And we had a band that we performed in front of our classmates at our high school. And when it was done, we're like, let's keep this going. And Nate had introduced me to ska probably about two years before that. Yeah, we were like, let's just start a ska band. And so we started a ska band, and with the intention of like playing with local bands so we could like get into shows for free. Uh, we figured if we were playing with them, we wouldn't have to pay. <laughs> Yeah, and so we we kind of got the band together and and as we were putting all the pieces together, we went to the Salvation Army. That was a church we went to. They have a rich tradition of like brass bands. And so it was very easy for us to put a ska band together. Whereas most people it's it's tough. It's tough to find horn players and then not only horn players, but horn players that you gel with and that you're friends with. You know, if, if you're a bunch of punk rockers or metalheads that get a horn section, you know, usually you don't mesh with, with the horns or or personalities and stuff like that. But all our friends were in these, these big Salvation Army brass bands. And so we had, we had anything we wanted just at the, you know, at our fingertips, got everything together. And then when we started writing music, um, you know, you write from the heart, I don't write about girls. And at that point I didn't write from a, a point of like pain or anguish or like things like that, that I went through. So you just sing from the heart and what was in my heart was just, you know, my faith. And so, uh, that's what came out my lyrics. I didn't even know there was like a Christian scene or anything like that. So I just wrote what came from my heart and that was like about my faith and about hope and mercy and stuff like that. And so that's kind of how we started.
0: Well, let's carry on with that. I picked up your debut Motor City Ska when it first came out. Yeah. And you know, obviously the faith aspect was there. Yeah. But it didn't really seem like you were aiming at converting people. It seemed to be more like you were trying to give a positive influence. I guess I'm thinking of songs like Walking Dead.
1: Sure. Yeah. That's exactly what it was. Like so we thought there were maybe like other bands like us out there obviously. Like we knew we weren't the only ones. Um but that's what we did. So we we kind of wrote these songs and they just came from like where we were as teenagers. I mean, like those songs were written when I was like, you know, 17, 18 years old. And it was just what we experienced in our faith at that point. It wasn't, you know, uh, go out and convert everybody. It wasn't trying to, to be the next like great crusade or anything. It was just, this is our music. We're a ska band and the lyrics we sing about are what we experience and you know, what we have experienced and gone through and, And if that resonated, like our our mission for our band was always, if our lyrics resonate with people and people come up to us after a show and want to talk to us and and ask more questions about it or want to know about our faith, you know, whatever the case may be, we just made ourselves available. That's kind of how our mission began and like the the focus of the, the band began.
0: Well, tell me, with the Insiders being in Detroit, was that a common thing? like was there a ska scene in the city
1: yes there was an amazing ska scene in the city man i could just go through and we had from like grand rapids but they were down here all the time there was mustard plug Mm. um in the city of detroit we had the suicide machines we had the exceptions we had gangster fun um we had bands that were kind of newer bands uh axe mama axel sid there was a canadian punk band called punch buggy yeah, so like Punch Buggy would come over here and play. And then a bunch of bands from like the surrounding states, like from Chicago, Slapstick would come here, the Blue Meanies, Johnny Sacco. So Detroit was like this amazing scene of ska. And and one thing that was always cool is it was a mix of ska punk and hardcore. So quite often you would go to a show in Detroit and if the suicide machines which were like the big ska band were headlining there would be like a hardcore band that opened and then like a ska ska band you know with with horns and everything like that mm-hmm. that was you know second and then suicide machines that were like that punk ska like they would they would headline so a lot of the shows in detroit it was the hardcore kids the punk kids and the ska kids all together and so it was a really 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 awesome mix and then not only that, Tony Weatherly, he ran a club called The Fringe in another suburb of Detroit. Uh, it was a Christian club, and he would bring in Christian bands, and it was all those like early tooth and nail bands. Um, oh, sure. You know, Plank Guy, Seven Day Jesus, uh, Strong Arm, Zayo, bands like that. He would bring them in, and so you just knew that it was pretty much like every other weekend uh, you didn't even care who was on the bill. You just went because you were 18 years old. There was a show at the fringe. So you knew that you were going to be seeing, you know, a hundred of your friends from all over the Metro Detroit area that were just there for whoever was playing. It it literally did not matter who was on the show. It was just that there was a show. <laughs> That's when you know that you have a scene is it's just like, this is the place to be on Friday night. Cause you know, everyone will be there and some nights the band wowed, and you know you bought their CD, and some nights it didn't, but you were still there with all your friends, and you had a great time. So the scene here in the 90s was
0: amazing. Well, you guys were making the scene, and what really put the insiders on the map was Scaliluja. Yes. Yep. So you were covering what, at that point in time, I guess, were modern worship songs. Yes. But then you gave them a ska sound. Correct, But the band must have offended some people when you put that kind of a twist on a song like Awesome God. Yeah, it was weird because what we did is when we first started
1: at our first practices, we didn't know our style. We didn't know what everyone was good at. And so instead of like on day one trying to write a song, we just tried to hone our skills. And so what we would do is we would play praise and worship songs. So the guitar player would get used to playing ska guitar, the bass player, you know, everything. All the pieces would get used to playing these songs that were already written. And so we had probably four or five praise and worship songs that we just practiced over and over and over. Well, then when we started playing like normal shows, we only had maybe three or four originals. And so we thought we're like the new kids on the block. Well, not, we weren't the new kids on the block, right? We weren't a boy band, but like we were, <laughs> we were the new band that was kind of out there. We kind of figured we face a little opposition with our lyrics and stuff, but it was the opposite. Like the scene was so cool, people loved our music, and they didn't really care about the lyrics. I know that sounds weird, but they didn't really care. They just loved the music. They loved the sound. They loved the dance. And so we would play our like three originals and then they would chant for more. And so we were like, uh, we don't have any more. We played <laughs> we played like our four originals. So we were like, you know what, let's play a praise and worship song. And so we started doing these songs that we kind of honed our skills to. Well, fast forward to us putting out Motor City Scar, our first album, our fans that would come to our shows and then hear us play these praise and worship songs that were basically fillers you know they voiced their disdain that we didn't have any of them on Motor City Ska and so it was at that point that we were like all right we'll do this this Skyliluja album which was basically like a love letter to our fans like so many people asked us to record these praise and worship songs that we were doing we'll do this album for them so our intention was never to like be like a big praise and worship band. It was giving our fans what they wanted in an album. We did a couple more to, you know, to fatten up an album and then we put out Hallelujah and then that took off. So it wasn't what we had started. You know, we wanted to be a band that did originals and and kind of had like a ministry in clubs. You know, we always said you know, not everybody comes to church, so we'll kind of take church out to them. And then all of a sudden, "Scalaluya" kind of sent us in a different direction because that all of a sudden, like, blew up. Okay,
0: well, now we're going to get into music geek territory. Okay. You released Skyliluja on Steve Taylor's Squint Entertainment label. Yeah. And he was the guy that made the careers of Sixpence, None the Richer, and Chevelle. Yeah. Was he yeah. influential to your music?
1: Absolutely. Um, It it was so cool because, like, at the beginning of Squint, when they were going out and finding bands to kind of do that, we had signed one of those typical record deals that you heard of in the past that are awful, you know, for the artist and whatever. So, our original um, record label was called Gumshoe. And Mm -hmm. we signed like a three album deal. And after the first album, after we put out Motor City Sky, they went bankrupt. Well, they didn't want to release us from our contract. And we were like, you're not a company, (laughs) you know, like you're not a record label. How can you like, that's breach of contract. We're free agents. And they were like, no, you're not. We're just, we're trying to regain our funds. And once we get funds to open this office back up, you know, you're still going to be one of our artists. Well, Squint came along and Steve Taylor worked their magic with and the owners of Gumshoe and said, "Hey, can we get the insiders for a one album, you know, offshoot? We'll keep them relevant. And then when you guys are back on your feet, they'll be ready to put out their you know, their next album, and you guys can just go from there. And so they did. They let us do that. So we ended up going over to Squint. I wish I could sit here and say that I took everything that Steve Taylor, Told me, mm-hmm. uh, and and used it and put it in my toolbox, but I didn't. And it was one of those things where he's this absolute icon, and and the older I got, the more I realized that. But at the time, I was young and dumb and th- thought I knew everything. And the tips that he would give me on things, I wouldn't take that as gospel. And I was just like, okay, well, you know, you're from a decade or a couple of decades gone by, and I kind of know what I'm doing here. <laughs> and so I, I wish I could sit here and tell you that, but I, I didn't. And, um, and so looking back, I was kind of a dolt about it, but it was fun being a part of like the whole squint scene and, and being with Steve Taylor and hanging out with him. And, and still to this day, I can, I can pick up my phone and call him and he treats me like I'm his next door neighbor. Like, like we just had, you know, dinner yesterday. It was really cool being a part of that whole startup and being a part of squint for that one album.
0: I don't know how you were able to manage this, but in 98, the same year you dropped Skyliluja, you also released the Fight of My Life album. Like, did you guys never have time to sleep?
1: It, again, it was one of those things that the Skyliluja album, it was just done. We didn't have to write, you know, so like a lot of times artists, they have to take all that time to, to put new material together and to do all that stuff. Skyliluja was basically done. Because you just stole the songs. Exactly. Exactly. You steal them, you, you scam up, and they're good to go. And so that, that's what we did with Schalleluia, and it was like a one-off. And then in that interim, another record label called KMG, they went to Gumshoe and said, how much for the insider's contract? We'll buy them out from you. And so that's what they did. So they bought us out of our contract with Gumshoe to go over to them to finish our deal. With the Schalleluja, those songs were already written. And then so in the meantime, we're kind of, you know, putting stuff together for a new album. So I think that's kind of how we were able to, you know, kind of put two albums out almost within a year or within like just like 15 months or something like that.
0: You know, something interesting about Fight of My Life was that it really had a different tone from your debut release. You gave this one a harder sound, but it also included a song that was really personal. What about telling us about Forgive and Forget?
1: Yeah, so Forgive and Forget was a song like I wrote about my dad. You know, as a 45-year-old parent, like you realize that just because you're an adult, you know, technically in the legal <laughs> sense, doesn't mean that you like have it all together. And so Forgive and Forget was written about my dad who went through a really tough time when I was in in my teenage years and early twenties. And there was like a big section of my life where he wasn't around for. And instead of doing like the whole woe is me type thing, a few years went by and then I was like, you know what, like enough of this. Like I want to patch this up. I want to, you know, figure out what's going on. And so I reached out to him. We reconnected and it ended up reconnecting our whole family it was like, things were back on track at that point, And he was like our dad again. And, you know, we'd visit around the holidays and, you know, and, and now everything is like that period of time never happened. And so that's what that was about was just like this. It was kind of this like cathartic, like healing to just be able to, you know, use a piece of art, like music, to just be able to tell the world, like I went through this, you know there is forgiveness in this world for what people have done and 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 done to us and to just hold on to that only makes us angry you know when we don't forgive and we don't choose to love and we don't choose to be happy and and hold on to that like darkness it just it just ruins you that's all mm-hmm. it does and so uh, that's kind of like what that song is about is that whole relationship
0: I told you that we were going to cruise through the Insider discography. All right. So, 99 came around, and you guys did the worship thing again on Scalaluja 2. Yeah. But this time you also brought in a few original songs, like Psalm 139. And lyrics do come straight out of the psalm. If I settle by the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Well, what about for you personally, Joe? Do you always feel God close to you? Yes,
1: I, I do have to give credit. Nate Shogren, our drummer, wrote that song, uh, but I I was blessed to be able to to sing it. But absolutely, I'm one of those. I don't know if you want to call it Jesus freaks or weirdos or whatever. So I never felt it in, in an oppressive way. But I've always felt that like God is just always there. He's always there with me. He's always there, you know, going through stuff with me. Um if I chose to not take the correct path, I always felt like I knew which way to go and I would be pulled back. I almost say it like this, like a stupid analogy. Even if I wanted to jump off a cliff, I feel like he would have pulled me back and put me back on the cliff. Like wow. I've always felt this, this pull and this connection with my faith that no matter what I can do, I'm always coming back. Like There's no getting out of it for me. It's an amazing thing for me, and I I love that I feel that. So with the lyrics to that song, it does explain that
0: wherever I go, you're watching, you're with me. You know, I find so many bands and artists, they end up having to make a conscious decision and say, okay, I'm going to go into the Christian music scene, or I want to go mainstream. You guys seem to be able to float either direction.
1: Yeah, for sure. Because we just don't care. Like, we always just wanted to make music. We just wanted to be buddies and make music and just have fun. You know, I'm proud that, like, we had a video on MTV. You know, it would have been great to, like, be asked to do Warp Tour and stuff. But. I don't look at at that as like missed opportunity or or anything like that. We just had fun doing what we wanted to do. We we were 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds, then 20-year-olds kind of running our business. We ran it the way we wanted to. I mean, to tell you the truth, if I tried to write a song about a girl or I tried to write a song about politics, nothing would hit the paper. Like, it, it, <laughs> I literally cannot write about that stuff. And so the only thing that, that comes out of me is is my faith. That's how it's always been.
0: Your faith was made abundantly clear on soundtrack to a revolution. And that was in 2003. Yes. And that title track, I mean, it's a huge favorite of mine. And it says, the chains have been broken. Liberation has been granted we raise our flags to signify we stand on holy ground so that really is what it was all about that was the band's anthem absolutely absolutely
1: the thing that was so cool about that album is you touched on it earlier as as you progress through the insiders catalog our sound on each album changes a little bit whether it was a producer or whether it was pressure at the time from what was popular it was always something that changed us and i think our even our fans have always told us your live show is nothing like your albums and Mm -hmm. so i've always felt that our shows are a lot harder that lean almost really towards the the ska core yeah and once we hit soundtrack to a revolution that was our first album where we had been done with music. Like we kind of went underground. We kind of did this like soft breakup. Um, and it had been a few years. And then we we came back and, and Tim Tabor, our manager, had started his record company, uh, which was called Transparent. And we did that album on Transparent Records. It wasn't a record company telling us where to go, who our producer was going to be. And then it wasn't this producer coming in, uh, telling me that I got to sing from my diaphragm and then like change my voice. And it wasn't any of that. Like Tim was just like, you know, here you go, give me an album. And so we were able to record it how we wanted. And it was, it was amazing. It was so much fun doing it. And, uh, We got Royce Nunley, the bass player from The Suicide Machines. So we recorded at his studio in his house. He produced it. And it was like the first time we went to him and we were like, you know, what should we do here? How do you want me to sing this? And he was like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Then I was like, well, how do you think this should be sung? And he's like, look, dude, this is your band. This is your music. You're putting out what you want people to hear. And so to me, it was like this great enlightening, where at that point I was like, oh my gosh, we get to make an album that we want to make, not that the record label wants to make. So Soundtrack to a Revolution and then the the following album, Sinner's Songbook, were both done by us and the way we wanted them done. So those two are special to me. Those two make me feel like
0: that is our sound. You just talked about the Sinner's Songbook. That was in what? 2012 yes that was a long time after 2003 because you guys had actually announced that the band was done yes yep that was a group decision
1: um yes it kind of was after Luya 2 was done everybody was just kind of cooked and it had been nonstop going 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 and people are getting married and people are starting to have kids and things like that and In fact, nobody in the band was like, I want to be a musician for the rest of my life. So everybody was kind of looking to get into like normal life, get married, settle down, not be on the road 10 months out of the year. Cause that, I mean, we went hard. We were, we were always playing shows. So that's what we did. And then you get in the, the everyday where you're going to your nine to five and you're you know, you're, you're just living life and you're kind of in that. And then all of a sudden the nostalgia starts to hit. (laughs) And from what I had done, like in my life, there was a new reason to write. Uh, You know, I I started writing all those songs that were on soundtrack. And, and so suddenly like I had something to say again in my life and that's where those were written. And then again, we kind of toured, played some shows off of that uh, album, and then went back to daily life. And then it wasn't until 2012. The way Center Songbook came out was I had written all these songs and I was going to do a project of my own. And it was just going to be me, acoustic guitar, maybe a couple other instruments. And I had written all these songs, like some of them about like my kids growing up, about Heartache and heartbreak and and kind of those types of things that things that had happened in my life. And I asked, uh, you know, Nate, our drummer, I was like, hey, would you would you play drums on a few of these tracks? And I let him listen to it. And he was like, dude, we should do these as insider songs. So the Sinner Songbook was pretty much the entire thing was an album that I was going to do as a solo project. And we ended up getting the, getting the band together. We did a Kickstarter project, and then we put that album out. And so that
0: became the Sinner songbook. You must have been happy to find that your fans were still showing their support. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's
1: absolutely crazy because I have self-deprecating humor and, and stuff like that. And I always, felt, I always felt like every band we played with was better than us. And so like, I always feel like we played third fiddle the super tones or the top, you know, five are, and then us, I mean, shoot, you could even put squad five Oh ahead of us or, you know, some other bands, but it, it it's is just whether squad five Oh would admit they were ska.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's always been that question.
1: Correct. Off their first album, they they probably would have. But after that, um, I kind of feel like, um, past movie stars that show up at comic cons and you're like, oh my gosh, that guy used to be in, you know, such and such TV show. I loved that as a kid that's kind of how i feel now and i embrace it and i love it and so i've loved over the last you know 2 years with with podcasts and things like that being able to get in touch with fans and and talk to fans that you know um were impacted by the insiders because i didn't pay attention to that when i did it i was trying so hard to not be cool that i let the moment pass and i didn't appreciate all the stuff that was going on around me and now that I'm an adult, and those days are long gone, I've realized like how fun that was, and you know, connecting with fans and talking to them every single day um, on Instagram or, or Facebook and stuff like that—it's it's a lot of fun.
0: Now you've already brought this up. You know, there's been a lot of Christian ska bands, yeah. but as you've even mentioned, I mean, the Insiders, the OC Supertones, and Five Iron Frenzy have always been referred to as the big three, and legitimately so, because you stood out from the rest of the crowd. Now, the cool thing is that on the title track from the singer's songbook, you basically brought all three bands together. you got to give us the story. How did you do that?
1: You know, just over the years, people were like, yeah, it would have been cool if you guys all could have done a song together. And then the technology had gotten to the point that when we were doing Center Songbook to be able to record and then send somebody that recorded song and all they do is plug in a microphone at their home and they don't even have to leave. It allowed us to, to do things with other people. Matt Baird from Spoken um, you know, was on another track. And then with Reese and, and Matt Morginski, I had contacted them and said, "Hey, would you guys want to do this?" and and Reese and I are good friends, and so he was immediately like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, I'll do it." And then Matt, it kind of took some convincing, you know, for him to finally get back, but and he did it, and I'm grateful for it. And so it is cool. It was it was awesome that we were able to get all of us together. The thing is, it was two decades too late, you know. I I feel like if the Sinner's Songbook would have came out. You know, in that heyday of the '90s, I mean, that would have been a banger. Um, oh you yeah! Know, but we we put that out, and and I don't even think you know. Still to this day, there's people who call you know who are like, "Yeah, I'm an Insiders fan," but they have no clue that we put out Sinner's Songbook or soundtrack to a Revolution. That's disappointing. <laughs>
0: That's just the <laughs> way it is. Well, I guess this has just been a quick look at the whole Insiders history. But now with the band back, you've mentioned Furnace Fest. Yeah. But long term, is there any chance of it carrying on?
1: Um, long term, I've been completely open and honest with everybody. I'm open for 3 to 4 dates a year. My job doesn't really allow me to to get away that often and when it does, I don't want to spend it in a van with a bunch of grown men. And it's just there's it, certain limits it is and and that was one of the things that like i found by by like but i'm completely all for you know if someone wants to do something with us if five iron you know plays chicago and flatfoot 56 wants to play i would love to do you know, like a Chicago show, you know, a Miami show, an Atlanta show, you know, just some bigger shows, maybe a few times a year. I can absolutely do that. But I do not see tour tours happening uh, at
0: all. <laughs> so now everybody knows they've just got to show up at Furnace Fest.
1: Yeah, it's it's Furnace Fest. At, right now we're playing uh, April 15th in Grand Rapids, Michigan, at uh, a place called Skeletons, and we're playing there April 15th. And then the, the next show that we have set up is Furnace Fest, which is the last weekend of September in Birmingham, Alabama. I know we're probably going to do a Detroit show. Um, like maybe a Detroit, Chicago, Friday, Saturday thing sometime, maybe mid August is what we'd like to do. And th- that will probably be it. Like those four shows um it's real interesting because uh my girlfriend she has no clue of me in that life and so uh it's it's interesting like watching her like kind of see like oh my gosh like you did what back in the day so it was pretty funny
0: so cool yeah joe yerke of the insiders has been with the antidote joe thanks for coming man this has been really special Yeah, for sure.
1: Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for showing an interest. Thanks for for all that contacting me. This is this is great. I just I absolutely love the fact that someone would take time to just discuss, you know, something that that me and my buddies just did just to just to have fun. So I I really appreciate you uh, spending your time uh, talking to me.